Good morning. My name is Rick and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I'm very grateful to be back. And the reason I say that, for uh, God's divine mystery and the way he does it, 25 years ago at the Al-Anon State Convention, I was the keynote spiritual speaker. And one of the things I, I just wanted to ask was, it took you 25 years to ask me back. It, <laughs> Did I say something wrong? I mean, you know. But I'm here and I'm grateful to be here. And I'm always grateful to be in a room with so many absolutely happy, smiling, sick people. Okay. I mean, just think of where we came from. It just frightens me almost. That what the power of God can do in people's lives when they let them. And when they have the courage to, to reach out for help, and I'll talk more about that hopefully at the end. But my story is that I am the only child of two alcoholic parents. So I am familiar with laying in the bed, pulling the covers over my head, hoping that the fear would go away, the terror of what's going to happen, is it my fault, what can I do or not do, all of these things, praying to God, saying, please make this stop, and only having it stop when the police came or someone passed out. And these are wounds that I carried for many years, and wounds that I tried to drink away. Not initially, because this was never going to happen to me. Well, wouldn't it be so easy to just make a simple mental decision and have everything work out fine? But it's not easy. At least it wasn't for me, because I was alone. Alcohol makes everybody alone. But the day would come when I would be trying to grow up, to impress people, to become who I hoped I could be, and it didn't seem to work. Now, I was raised a good Catholic boy. I come from the great Irish Catholic grandmother with the holy water and the rosary beads and the whole thing. Prayed over, baptized, confirmed, and I think I'm really grateful for that. I am grateful for my Catholic heritage, even though, you know, I did get beaten by Sister Mary Guilt, you know. <laughs> But you know what? She never hit me when I didn't deserve it. And I can remember her saying to me, Richard, if you don't straighten out your life, your life's going to go straight to hell. And I said, huh, what does she know? But she was right. Because I didn't straighten my life out. I drank and my life went to hell. She was right. But to a point, to a point, because gradually I would grow up and I would go on through school and I was very quiet because we all had our secrets. We couldn't talk about what was going on in the house uh, because God forbid, yet the whole neighborhood, I mean, when the, when the police come to his house, it's not a big secret, you know. <laughs> I don't know who I was kidding, but basically uh, I didn't do too bad. 
until I got about into high school. And then in high school, I lived in Stamford, Connecticut, and it was right down the, across the line to Portchester, Connecticut. And when I got my license, boom, we would go down to Portchester so I could have a few beers. And why I had the beers after seeing, uh, you know, what had it had done to my family, that's part of the addictive mind. And I have an addictive mind. And, and I would drink, and it would calm the fears. It would calm the wounds. It would make me feel special. And I think I had forgotten that God had made me special. Because when you come from an alcoholic background, you lose that truth. So I would go down to Port Chester and I would drink and I would play basketball and I was an athlete and I had no problems with the ladies and, you know, I could dance. Of course, I could dance much better with a few six-packs in me. Uh, and I would go along and, and do what I needed to do and constantly being totally unaware that I was being drawn into this trap. But this was fun. I wanted to go out and have fun. You know, I was a fun guy. Okay, drunks are not boring. They may be a real pain in the neck, but we are not boring. And I wasn't. So I uh, went off to college and, uh, you know, out in college, now I'm free. Free to do whatever I want. But I didn't know what I wanted. So when you don't know and the fears come back into your life and you're all alone, you drink and you drug. Uh, this was in the uh, late 60s. And this may come as a shock to you, but I was a hippie. I had long, black, curly hair. Okay? My wife is sitting right here. She'll vouch for that. I pulled it all out when I had teenage daughters. But, uh... So anyway, here I am going to school, and all of a sudden... A little before this, I have to go back and just mention this. A little before this, my two alcoholic parents, all of a sudden something changed in the home. And what had changed was my father went to AA. And he dragged my mother, kicking and screaming, and, you know, because she was a professional lunatic. And, uh, but she went. And I can remember the 24-hour book being on the uh, edge of our coffee table. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that the pain was basically subsiding and the screaming was subsiding. And I give my father a lot of credit and my mother to this day because their example that you can be restored to sanity and peace was what I would remember was when it was my turn to face the truth. And that's, I, I say this because I think it's important for you to realize that no matter what your situation is at home, your being here, your being in this program, your willingness to try to walk this spiritual path can make a tremendous difference in the lives of your children. It worked for me. So anyway, I go off to... Uh, New Haven now. I started in Jersey. I, I had to switch because, you know, nothing's ever good enough for a drunk. And I, and I had to switch and I go up to New Haven. And I'm in New Haven during the 60s and all hell's breaking loose and we're doing drugs and, you know, having a wild time and all these types of things. 
and I'm getting sicker and sicker and sicker. But I didn't realize this. So what I had to do is I had to find somebody to blame. So I married my wife. Okay? Because we all need somebody to blame. And I'd run out of blame in the Catholic Church and the Vietnam War and everybody else. So I kidnapped my wife and we got married. And uh, that put me into her family, which was with the goddess of gloom and the apostle of pain. Those are my in-laws. For some reason, my mother-in-law didn't think I was a great catch for her daughter. I don't know why. But off we went. Now, at this time, you know, they had the Vietnam War and they were going to uh, draft me. And I said, I'm a hippie. I'm not a warrior. Uh, but I did have to go in. And I went into the Air Force, which I thought was Nirvana, because at the NCO club, you could buy a six-pack of beer for 75 cents. Oh, heaven. Basically, I was a beer alcoholic, okay? I was a wine-o-2, and I'd have drank, you know, dirt if it would have gotten me high. But uh, beer was my drink of choice. So I'm in the service, and, you know, as God watches out for us, it's amazing how God watches out for us in spite of ourselves. In the middle of the Vietnam War, 90% of my platoon went to Vietnam. I went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Okay? Don't tell me there's no God. You know how many bars there are in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? The funny thing was, though, my brother-in-law, who's an avid golfer, uh, after I came back from a few months in Myrtle Beach, he says, oh, how many golf courses do you play in Myrtle Beach? I said, I didn't know they had golf courses in Myrtle Beach. <laughs> you know, I knew the NCO club, the bar, the little bit of beach. So anyway, we did something there. But about that time, my father got very, very ill, and he was dying of cancer. So through a lot of manipulation, and uh, I was able to get back up to uh, Massachusetts to the service, and he did die sober, 15 years. And one of the sad parts of my life was that he didn't get to see me get sober. But I, being a Catholic, we have this thing about intercessory prayer, and we pray to all these people and hope that they'll help us. And I really think some of the prayers that I used to my father have been <coughs> instrumental in helping me. I can't prove that. But I don't need to prove it anymore. I just need to believe it. Because a belief is stronger than a fact. So we got out of the service uh, because my mother had had a relapse. And now mom and I are drinking. That was a fun time. Uh, and my wife is frantic because she doesn't know what she did or did not do to cause the problems that were going in my life. And I made it sure that she realized that it was something she did or did not do. I remember one time I went to the doctor. I was having tremendous indigestion. Okay. So I went to the doctor and the doctor said to me, well, how much do you drink? And I said, a couple. Now, that's all an alcoholic ever drinks is a couple. And he says, well, you know, does your wife cook with spicy foods? I says, yeah, I think so. He says... Does she cook with curry? I says, yeah, I think so. <laughs> now, my, my wife comes from an Irish background. They know salt, they know pepper. Okay? 
But I go home and I said, it's your fault I got this problem. She had to go look in the cookbook to see what curry even was. I find out. But see, I had to blame people because I could not face myself. Because gradually and quickly, I was starting to become someone I hated. And when you become someone you hate, that hate cannot stay inside. It comes out in anger. It comes out in projected fear and all these types of things. So uh, I, I got out of the service, and because I was a very sharp, intelligent, you know, intellectual guy, I uh, found a person who was interviewing for a job who drank like I did, and I became, at 22 years old, I believe it was, a f systems analyst for a Fortune 500 company in Stanford, Connecticut. I had the attache, I had the secretary, I had cocktails at the Westchester Sheraton, okay? And I was on the rise. I was going places. They only had one ridiculous expectation of me at that job. They expected me to come to work. And I mean, that was silly because I would go to work and make believe I was working, and then at night I would have to go out to the real boys, okay, the Harry's Bar and, you know, Bubba's Bar and things like this, because they understood me, okay, no one understood me. By this time we had a daughter, and that put more pressure on me. And being a drunk, how do I handle pressure? I would drink, and I would run away from it. Alcoholics are always running away, running towards something or running into something. So I, uh, I drank more, okay? And all of a sudden the pressure was worse and I had to blame, so I decided we're gonna move, all right? We're gonna move, I got this great alcoholic idea, all right? We're gonna move up north, get out of Stanford, it's too expensive, blah, 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 get away from uh, these people. And so I, I showed these people I quit. I just walked in and quit. You don't appreciate me, I quit. And from this Fortune 500 job, the next job I had was washing dishes for friendly ice cream. Okay? Now, some people go down slowly. <laughs> Not me. But the arrogance was there. Okay? I, I, I graduated from washing dishes to uh, being an assistant manager, but I was probably the most unfriendly employee friendly ice cream ever had. You know, when you go in in the morning and you got a wine hangover and this woman says to you, my eggs are too runny. You know what you can do with your eggs, sweetheart? I'll tell you what you can do with your eggs. So I didn't last too long and that, that I wasn't fast-tracked at Friendly's. <laughs> so I said, aha, I know what to do. I'm going to work for the government. I got a job in the Postal Service. Now, the Postal Service was good for me because there are a lot of drunks in the Postal Service. Matter of fact, people say to me, oh, my mail is late. You're lucky you ever get your damn mail. <laughs> So I'm working on downtown Hartford, 
And right across the street from downtown Hartford was a joint called the captain's table, a real joint. And uh, matter of fact, you had to go down three steps to get there. So, so that when you looked out the window, you were eye level with the, the gutter. <laughs> My type of place. And you know, the women with the cigars and the whole thing. And, uh, but this was it. The problem was that my alcoholism had deteriorated to my mind where I could not even memorize a simple sequence of numbers. And I came within days of losing that job. And had I lost that job, all hell would have broke loose. Okay? By now, our lives have deteriorated. We're living in a two-room hovel in New Britain. Uh, I have no idea what's going on. One situation, I, I, I got so drunk one night I wasn't a, a wake-up, sit-up, and throw-up drunk, okay? But I could have been president of Diaries Anonymous. And one night, one very, very special night, I, I get up in the middle of the night, I sweat in, in the bed, just sweat constantly. I get up in the middle of the night, I run into the bathroom, and I have a crisis, okay? And the crisis is I have terrible urge for diarrhea simultaneous with this tremendous urge to throw up. And I don't know which end to stick in the bowl first. I think if someone had come up to me and said, do you think your life is unmanageable? At that moment, I'd have gotten here sooner. But the problem is, when you're an alcoholic, you are always alone, okay? And I was alone in the bathroom, I was alone at work, I was alone wherever I was. Because you can only fit one person in a bottle, no matter how hard you try. And you can only have one love, and that's alcohol. Anyway, as things got worse, uh, one day we went back to Stanford to a party or something with the goddess of gloom and the apostle of pain. And there was another party that they were going on. I said, come on, we've got to go to this party. And uh, we went there, and I, my wife asked me, please, you know, don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. Promise, cross my heart, hope to die. Now, I had gone to AA a few months before that, all right? And I went to New Britain to the Resurrection House, down and out. And when at first meeting I was there, there were like three winos, two hookers, and a wet brain, what they used to call a wet brain, the old timers. And the guy said to me, uh, asked me the classic question, you know, because I was young. And he said, how bad does it have to get? I didn't have an answer for that. I bought the big book. I took it home. I read it overnight. Matter of fact, to this day, I'm, I think I'm only the second person I know was stupid up to buy the big book. They would have given it to you if you go to enough meetings. <laughs> <laughs> See, but my big thing was knowledge. If I had knowledge, if I read the book, I'm an educated man, then I could do it. Alcohol couldn't care less about how smart you are, okay, how tough you are. And I was a tough kid, grew up in a tough neighborhood. But uh, we're back at the party, and I promised my wife, that's it. I'm not going to get drunk. And uh, about two hours later, I'm wasted. That was the word we used back then. I was wasted again. How it happened, I didn't know at the time. And she came up to me with tears in her eyes and she said, but you promised. And I puffed up, my wife's only about this big, and I said, get out of my face. I can stop any damn time I want to stop, okay? 
And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a voice popped into my head, my heart. I don't know. It said, no, you can't. Once you pick up the first drink, you never know when you will stop. Whoa. That was my spiritual experience. One moment of honesty in what had become a lifetime of lies. And that was on September 2nd, 1975. My last drink. Now, the interesting thing is that the day before that, I had no more intention of stopping drinking the next day than I had of flying to the moon. But see, this is how God works. When you are ready, you'll get the message. And even though I didn't understand it, that day I was ready. Well, now I'm not drinking. Whoopie-doo. Okay? I was not dancing in the street, folks, at all. Because what do you do to fill the hole that alcohol put into your life? I didn't know. By now, I had a second child. I had work. So I found out that in the post office, they had an EAP program, uh, one of the first in Connecticut. And I was 27 years old, and I went to it. And they said to me, I want you to go to the Pathfinders Club. Now, in Manchester, there's this pit called the Pathfinders Club. They call it a club, but it's really a a garage. (laughs) And I went over to the Pathfinders Club, and I met these really mean guys. Okay? Because back then, there was no political correctness. All right? They did not care if they hurt your feelings. In the least. They, They seemed to relish in it. Okay, but the thing was, they weren't trying to, they weren't worried about my feelings. They were trying to save my life. Because it's a terminal illness. And I didn't realize how sick and close to death I was. Physically, I didn't look that bad. But inside, I was near death. My spirit was almost comatose. So basically, I told, did what they told me to do. And they told me some mean things. Sit down, shut up. I got a resentment. I had resentments, I had resentments before I knew what resentments were. <clears throat> they told me, get a sponsor. The best single thing I ever did in AA was get a hard-nosed, honest sponsor. Now here I had, you know, a well-educated man, and I got a sponsor I don't think graduated from high school, and he told me things that I really didn't want to hear, like grow up, okay? Uh, He told me that the first drink gets you drunk. He told me that, you know, you're not here just for your own self-satisfaction. He said, we're going to know the quality of sobriety, not by how many meetings you go to, not by how long you've been sober, not by how many passages you can quote out of the big book. If I, 
If I want to know the quality of your sobriety, I will ask your wife. Okay. I was not applauding. Because <laughs> by this time, my wife had gotten into Al-Anon. Okay. And she wasn't nice to me anymore either. <laughs> and I would come home from a hard day of dealing with all the idiots in the post office and, and, you know, normally take it out on her. And she would say to me, call your sponsor. <laughs> or changed attitudes affect family behavior. <laughs> or the one I really hated. Most people are as happy as they make up their mind to be. <laughs> Fortunately, I never hit her. My sponsor would have killed me. <laughs> so we went along, and I tried to do what they told me to do. Now, I came in before they had step meetings, before they had big book meetings or anything. Basically, we had the slogans, and uh, we had certain things. But the problem was, just because I sobered up doesn't mean all the isms were gone. I had a real problem with an ego. Uh, some of you may have known alcoholics who had problems with ego. <laughs> and arrogance. Uh, I'll never forget one of the things they said to me which put a real dent in my arrogant balloon was I went to my sponsor. I was sober about nine months. And I went to my sponsor and I said, you know, Dick, I'm really not sure I still need to uh, be in this program. I've been here nine months. I read the book. You know, I did the whole thing. And he asked me a question. He says, Rick, do you know who started AA? And I read the book. See, I'm a smart guy. I said, sure. Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob. He says, yeah. Do you know what, uh, what kind of doctor Dr. Bob was? I says, yeah. Dr. Bob was a proctologist. And he says to me, well, do you know what a proctologist does? I, I says, yeah. He fixes assholes. <laughs> He said, God, Rick, you are in the right place. <laughs> so I stayed. One day, about three years sober, I'm on the phone trying to save another drunk, like everybody does. You know, when you're three years sober, you have all the answers. <clears throat> and my... Uh, my young daughter is in the other room crying. And I'm saying to God, and I'm just getting back to God here, you know, because I had fired God with the Pope and all these other people. You know, because you know the difference between an alcoholic and a theologian. Three drinks. <laughs> Give any alcoholic three drinks, he knows more than the Pope. So the kid's crying, I'm trying to save the world, and I say to God in my arrogant way, would you please stop this kid from crying. Can't you see I'm trying to do 12-step work here? <laughs> and uh, uh, about a minute later, she stopped crying because she had stopped breathing. Now, I don't say this to infer in any way, shape, or form that God directly did this, you know, as a result of my prayer. I just want to show how arrogant and how difficult it is 
to take the attitude out of the alcoholic. You know, it's a hell of a lot easier to take the drunk out of the gutter than it is to take the gutter out of the drunk. It takes years to be able to do this. And that's if you're really working the steps. Today I get a little scared. Sometimes I, I worry that too many people think that going to step meetings is the same as doing the steps. Okay? And that just is not true, in my opinion. Uh, so anyway, we rushed this. <laughs> it was funny. I threw the kid in the car. We rushed to the doctor, and I got an easy does it bumper sticker on my car. I'm driving through stop signs and red lights and get into the car, and she had a minor seizure. And uh, But the beautiful thing about this was, was that when I got back home, <coughs> the person who I had been talking to on the phone was in my driveway because they were worried. What a blessing that is to be <coughs> within an organization where people think that much about you and will be willing to go to any length to help you. None of my bar buddies were around. I can tell you that much. So basically, uh, we continued to do what we needed to do. And I continued to learn and I studied. I became a student of the uh, writings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that helped me. And I went to meetings and I started to cheer people. But my little daughter who had the seizure didn't seem to be developing. And we started to get worried. And gradually as we went along, uh, we would begin the process of about a two and a half year odyssey with this little sick girl. And, you know, I'm sober f three and a half years, four years, and we're running to doctors and all this thing, and I'm running out of money, and uh, I'm waiting for good things to happen. Okay, where are the good things that are happening? All right? Uh, and what I realized was good things were happening all around me because I was put in, had been put into a place where the grace of God was available. And that's at the meetings. So I think I got it through osmosis, all right? Because I don't think I really was conscious of it. But every time you go to a meeting, the grace of God surrounds you. It seeps into us, even if we're not listening. So I would go and this kid would seem not to be seen to get any better and things got tough. Things got very tough. I had a choice, okay? Drink, run, 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 or keep going one day at a time. So we had a slogan, we held hands and we held on. And, uh, you know, we worked it out. And if I had a problem, I'd go to the Pathfinders Club and I would talk to these old rotten guys and they would say to me, you know, no matter what the situation was, my daughter's in a coma. Why the hell are you always worried about yourself? Go help somebody. What kind of a thing is that to say? It was what I needed to hear. Because if I focused on myself, I would have had one of the, I would have hosted one of the all-time great self-pity parties in the history of Connecticut. <coughs> Excuse me. So we didn't. And gradually, it was through her illness that I started to break some of my bonds and my arrogance and start to pray again and start to really spend time in trying to get to know why I got sober, why I was brought into this fellowship. I needed that 
because on September 2nd, 1980, on my fifth anniversary in AA, I walked down the little hall of our little bitty house to see how my very sick daughter was doing, and she was dead. And she had a choice. And the choice was, am I going to drink or am I going to call for help? Tough choice that day, but I called. And you showed up. And they came kept coming and we made it we made it that day through the funeral and the days to come I had so many damn Al-Anon tuna casseroles in my house (laughs) I haven't had one since But that's what we do. We do it. Okay? With the grace of God, we get through whatever it is. And I recognize that nothing, nothing could happen which can separate us from that grace, which can force us back to go back to the hell that we lived before. So because of that, we had had... I I should tell you this. We had another child just before Leanna died. And when she was born, uh, we had no money. We had nothing going for us because Leanna was so sick. And we didn't know what to name her. So we named her the only thing we had. Hope. And hope. Hope was born with some kind of rapid heartbeat. And I said, oh God, this is more than I could take. But they went to the hospital and they said, we're gonna give her this experimental drug. It's gonna add oxygen to her heart and I think she'll be all right. Well, they gave her the oxygen, went to her heart, went to the brain. The kid turned out to be a genius. <laughs> Drove me nuts. You ever live with a genius kid? She knows everything. And a couple of years ago, when we worried that Hope wasn't going to live, I, I marched her down the aisle. Great day. So these are the things that I really hoped would happen. In closing, and I've been working at this for a long time, two things I just want to mention to you. I had trouble with the third step because I would read the third step and i say, I'm not turning my will and my life over to God. But all of a sudden I realized there was another word in there and the word was care, okay? That we are under the wings of a caring higher power, a caring God. And a caring God is never going to abandon you. And that made all the difference in the world. I went back to school. I became a spiritual director. 
I lead retreats. I do all sorts of different types of holy stuff. <laughs> I, I think as a Catholic, I'm trying to work off my purgatory time. <clears throat> I, if I live to be 104, I'd make it. But uh, one of the things I realized is that of all the prayers we say, the serenity prayer, the Our Father, and, and the third step prayer in AA, there is one perfect prayer, in my opinion. And a perfect prayer is very simple because all spiritual profound thoughts are simple. It's one word, and the word is help. And it's perfect because this is exactly what we need from God. But this is also what God sends us out to do. Help each other and help those who ask for it. And that's what I've tried to do over the last 31 years. One day, I was on a retreat in Graymore, New York, and I like to write, and a little poem came to me, and I'll close with this because it's made a difference in my life and a few other people's lives. It's called the Stained Glass Offering. And basically it came to me because we're all kind of broken pieces, broken in many different ways, colored in many different ways. And it says, Lord God, we come before you, stained by years of life, broken into pieces by shattered dreams and strife. Lord God, put us together with glue from blackened pasts, a picture with a purpose to share your love that lasts. Lord God, help us accept your will to trust you know our place in the stained glass window you designed. Use our brokenness for grace. But Lord God, please above all else, keep us close to you for the hope of the beauty in our peace only lives as your light shines through. Believe and belong, for you are essential in the masterpiece of God. I hope I helped. See you in 25 years. (laughs)